This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome to a special episode of Technically Human, featuring Yael Eisenstadt in a live public conversation. This episode is part of a new and very ambitious research initiative at Cal Poly, supported by the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative and the National Science Foundation to explore the frontier of ethical technology work and to develop a new understanding of ethics and technology in the industry. There is no one better equipped to talk about this issue than Yael Eisenstadt, and we are thrilled to bring you this live conversation with questions from the Cal Poly community of students, faculty, and the public. Yael Eisenstadt is a former CIA officer, a former White House advisor, and the former global head of election integrity operations for political advertising at Facebook. In 2016, the outcome of an American election was transformed by social media. Since then, American democracy has had to reckon with the impact of tech. Yael Eisenstadt came on board Facebook to change it. What she discovered while working there alarmed her. She started speaking out, becoming a leading critic of tech's threat to democracy. She is currently a Future of Democracy Fellow at the Bagruen Institute and a researcher in residence at Beta Lab, working at the intersection of tech, democracy, and policy. In this conversation, we ask Yael the following questions. How can American democracy persevere in the age of social media? Why does tech need regulation? Who can rein in big tech and what can we do to help? Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm looking down at the attendees list. I see some faculty members and some students that I know here. So thank you all so much. My name is Matthew Harsh. I'm a faculty member in our interdisciplinary studies department. And I direct the Center for Expressive Technologies. And I have the pleasure of opening our event today. The event is sponsored by the Center for Expressive Technologies. I also want to acknowledge the other sponsor, which is a cluster of projects that are part of Cal Poly's strategic research initiative that are all focused on the tech workforce and how we could train the next generation of tech workers, especially in ways that are more inclusive and equitable. So with us today is Yael Eisenstadt, and we are so happy, Yael, to have you here today. Yael is a leading critical voice in helping us understand how technology and big tech firms, including Facebook, shape our democracy, our economy, and our society. And these platforms and these companies have really promised a lot, and they have provided a lot in terms of connection, in terms of freedom of expression, and they've certainly created a lot of jobs and made a lot of money and economic growth. But at the same time, they've led to an epistemic crisis and an erosion of truth, biased and racist algorithms, evaporating privacy, and a sexist and a racist work culture, amongst other issues. And so we're very happy to have Yao here, who has really a lot of insider knowledge about why this is the way it is and what we can do to fix it particularly on the role of government and what should the role of uh, the relationship between government and big tech look like. And when you look at her amazing biography, you can see that she has lived at that uh, that intersection between technology and and government. She has a MA in International Affairs from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. She has served as a CIA officer, as a White House advisor uh, on national security for then Vice President Joe Biden. And she was hired by Facebook to be the global head of elections integrity operations and left after not too long of a time. So that's something that uh, I'm sure we'll be interested to hear more about. Yeah. She was a visiting fellow at Cornell's Tech Digital Life Initiative. She is an adjunct professor at NYU's uh, Center for Global Affairs, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And she's currently a Future of Democracy fellow at Bergruen Institute and a researcher in residence at Beta Lab. Yael has been published pretty much everywhere. <laughs> I have to say, when I look at everything that you've written, is so impressive. The New York Times, the Washington Post, Brookings TechStream, Time, Wired, Quartz, Huffington Post, all the things that many of us read very frequently. Um, so we're just, we're just so grateful to have you here with us. For now, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Deb Donig in the English department, who's going to moderate our Q&A. And in terms of the structure, we're going to shoot for 
around 40 minutes of kind of moderated Q&A, and then we'll open it up for broader questions. Um, but if you do have questions, we can use the, the chat feature and the Q&A feature to track that. Um, so welcome, y'all. Thank you so much. And Deb, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Harsh. Yeah, El, I've heard you talk about the trajectory that brought you to Facebook in 2018 from public service to the private sector. You've said that, and I'm going to quote you here, quote, public service is the only environment where I knew that protecting profit, generating cash flow, or raising funds were not the standards by which I would be judged. Our value was judged by our contribution to protecting lives, advancing our national interests, our teamwork, and our contribution to a shared mission. Our client was the American people. Maybe you can start sharing a bit about your work in public service up to that shift to the private sector. What was your experience as a public servant? So yeah, public service. Listen, the grass is always greener. There's problems in public service and there's problems in private sector experience. But I've sort of always been what I would call a public servant at heart. From a very young age, I actually grew up in the Silicon Valley. And from a very young age, there was this part of me who always wanted to know how I was contributing to a greater sort of mission, how I was helping people, how I was a little bit more of a sort of collective sense of so I went east as soon as I could. And not to say that doesn't happen in California, but when you are thinking about government service, you go east <laughs> and spent about 14 years in government, working all over the world, working in about five different government agencies, was a diplomat for a while, spent much of my career working throughout Africa. And just, you know, I was a pre-September 11th government hire. I was curious about the US's role in the world. And as cliche as this sounds, my goal was always about helping make it a more just and secure world. And obviously the biggest honor of my life was serving who was then Vice President Biden at the White House. And after that experience, I didn't really know if there was anywhere more exciting to go in government after a role like that. And so I decided I wanted to see what the private sector brought to bear on some of the same huge challenges I'd been tackling in the public sector. You know, it's funny, when I finished my master's in 1999, so now everyone knows that I'm really old. And at that time, when you were curious about international affairs or about global issues, government was really sort of the top choice. And now, if people are curious about the world and about the interplay between the U.S. and other cultures and all of that, you could do anything. You could work for a global tech firm. You could work for a non I mean, there's, you could do those things back then as well. But now that interplay between the U.S. government's role in the world and U.S. companies' role in the world, are, it's, a, it's a much different ballgame. And um, so in 2013, that was really sort of my goal, is, as I said to friends, to find the biggest, baddest corporation really having a profound impact on some of the places I had spent much of my career in, particularly Africa, and help them figure out how to work with their communities better. And in 2013, that wasn't Facebook. It was actually ExxonMobil I was thinking about. And I went there and I headed their corporate social responsibility strategy. But you can see how that path eventually also led me to Facebook because I wanted to help the biggest companies having really profound and often negative impact. Well, I want to actually pick up there, you know, Facebook came under scrutiny in 2016. Many of us may remember that moment following the election and the ensuing release of information that suggested Facebook algorithms had been circulating fake information across its platform, which allowed for forms of political advertisement that amplified that fake news. They helped apparently political operatives in the Trump campaign target Facebook users with that information. And they deployed algorithms that created information bubbles for that fake news to an extent that many have argued that it changed the outcome of that 2016 election. I know this is recent history, but for many of us, the last five years have felt a thousand years long. Take us back to 2016 and set the stage for us. What did you see that moment? And, and how are you thinking about democracy in that moment, in the immediate aftermath of the election and the news that came out following? Sure. So again, remember that in 2013, I left a 14-year career as a public servant. And 
I had started that career off as a CIA officer, which is like for somebody who is this Californian sort of global thinker, you know, it's not something I talked about a lot or actually at all. But in 2015, just before the election, I started seeing this breakdown in discourse in the US. And I had spent my whole life focused on issues overseas as opposed to domestic issues. And I frankly saw what was happening in our rhetoric, in the way we were speaking to each other, in the way both the public and private conversations were happening as a bigger threat to our democracy than anything I had worked on previously. Um, and so I started speaking out in 2015, which was a complete 180 for me. I've always been behind the scenes. I've, I've never been someone who wants to be in front of the microphone. But I wrote a piece in 2015. It, the title was super salacious at the time. And now we'd all be like, yeah, that's obvious. The title was American Hate is a Bigger Threat Than Foreign Terrorism. And it was really about what is happening here that is pitting Americans against each other so dramatically that I actually think we are being radicalized in a way that is way more dangerous to our democracy than, I mean, I spent my life working on counter-extremism issues, including along the Somalia border. And this was a bigger concern for me. So I started digging in into sort of what was causing all of this. And, and I'm sure you'll dig into that with some of the questions. So I, I don't want to go on for 20 minutes here, but obviously in addition to all sorts of societal issues in the US and all sorts of things that contributed to it, the information ecosystem and what was happening to it was very clearly a major part of what was exacerbating so much of what was happening. And uh, so I started speaking up at tech conferences, which was weird. I was like, not a technologist. And I started getting invited to speak about the importance of engaging with people who aren't like-minded and like all these things about discourse and, and, and what I thought the social media in particular, I don't blame social media for everything, but what was social media in particular doing to cause so much of this? And then fast forward, I'm not one of those people who will say that I know that Facebook is the reason Trump was elected. I, I think, I don't know that anybody can prove whether or not that's true, but I certainly know that the company, others as well, but Facebook in particular, did provide tools to political operatives, including from other countries, as we all know, to not just interfere in our election, but interfere in how Americans view each other. And I don't think there's been a reckoning at all for that. I do think we're sort of in an environment where they say, we're sorry, we'll do better, and then we move on. So I would still like a reckoning in general for many things that have happened in the social media world, but. I do think 2016 was a wake-up call for many people. And yes, some people will say it was just a wake-up call for people who didn't want Trump to be elected. That's true. But for some of us, we had already woken up to this before the election. It's a wake-up call to how these companies were actually affecting our democracy. Here's a question about what happened next. You, you went to Facebook in, in 2018, presumably after you had already started speaking out. What did you hope to accomplish when you were there? And you, know, you left six months later. What were those six months while you were there like? What made you decide to leave? When they reached out to me, uh, we started speaking about actually a different role than I ended up going in for. But after a series of conversations with recruiters and Facebook leaders, I knew, listen, I'm not naive. I'd spent much of my career in the intelligence world. I didn't think I was going to go into Facebook and magically fix whatever problems were happening that were causing, again, it was really what I was concerned about was how we were being pitted against each other and how Americans, not, I mean, not just Americans, I was just focused on the U.S. in that moment, were being radicalized online. And I didn't think I would go in and fix everything, but I am the type of person when offered the opportunity to help steer a ship in a better direction on something that I fundamentally believed was one of the biggest threats to democracy, I had to say yes. So they made this offer in 2018, just after the Cambridge Analytica scandal became very publicly known and told me that I would be coming in to head a new team, focus on political advertising and really to grow and build a team to think about how to ensure that the advertising part of Facebook wasn't being manipulated to sway elections around the globe. I was responsible for not just the US. And that's a problem we can talk about later in this conversation. It's you wanna dominate the entire globe. You wanna to scale to be a global company, but you can't think there's a one size fits all solution to every election around the world. And that's what Facebook wanted. They wanted me to just come give this like, 
magical solution that would scale globally. So that's what I went in thinking. I also went in very clear. I told them I want to learn. I want to, I want to dig in. I want to see how we got here before I can start saying anything about how I think we should proceed. And unfortunately on day two, they changed my title and my responsibilities and all the things they told me I was there to do sort of fell apart. And on day two, you can't say I had already made a mistake. So it was the one question I can't answer because I don't know the answer to is why they hired me to begin with but I certainly was never empowered to do the work that I was told I was there to do. And, and the reality is because what I wanted to do, no matter what would end up slowing down the company and would end up chipping away at their business model. And so they just wanted me to kind of help fix around the margins and not ever get to the core problems. I mean, here's a question that I have about the kind of nature of these new ethical technology jobs that are popping up in the tech industry. I see Salesforce hiring a chief ethics officer. I see these kind of ethical technology positions opening up. The hopeful part of me says that tech knows that it's broken and it wants to hire people who can help to fix it. Then the cynical voice jumps in and it says, well, maybe this is like a PR move to say, hey, we're hiring all of these people here who are ethical people, or we're hiring somebody who has a visibility already, who can visibly help our company demonstrate that we potentially are doing something while systematically disempowering the very people that they hire from actually making change because to make change would actually affect the business model. But am I being too cynical? I guess I am to know. Right. So, I mean, I wouldn't even bother continuing to speak if I wasn't hopeful that there is still change that can happen. Otherwise, why am I wasting my time? I, I would never put all companies into one basket. So let's start with that. I do think there are some companies, including some social media companies that are really grappling with what sort of changes do we need to make to ensure that we are actually protecting our users, protecting the public, protecting democracy. I will be very blunt. I haven't seen Facebook make those decisions. So I'm not just critical because of my experience there. I'm critical because they still haven't made the changes I'd like to see, but some other companies are. I think part of the, the bigger struggle is, I mean, first of all, what do we even mean by ethics, right? So if you're going to hire people to come in and have them talk about ethical ways of doing things, whatever it is, whether it's the ethical use of AI, that's a big one now, the ethical use of data. If there is not a demonstrated support from the CEO and C-suite on down that we are willing to make very tough decisions and changes, even though it may fundamentally alter our business model or our bottom line, then all the good people in the world that work there, I mean, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter, but that's an uphill battle for them. I met so many people at Facebook who were smart and passionate and really wanted to do whatever they thought the right thing would be. But all the changes in the world will not matter if you're not willing to look at the core systemic issues that are making your platform ripe for things like disinformation and violence and hatred and all those things. So the, the bigger question is, I hope the next generation of technologists will build differently. And I hope the next generation of investors will invest in technologies that build differently. I'm not sure that at this point, a company like Facebook will ever steer the ship in the right direction without being forced to. So here's a question that I have about the kind of role of Facebook culture. The article that I quoted you from earlier carries the title, the tech giants cultures are incompatible with fixing the societal problems that they're causing. Now I know that authors don't always get to choose the title that runs with their piece, but I do think the title is a good caption, at least for the argument that you make in that article, which looks at the role that company culture plays in creating some of the unintended or willfully ignored consequences of tech production. What is it in the culture that you see or saw during your time with a tech giant that you see as responsible for some of those consequences? There are many different ways you can answer this question. I've been thinking a lot about culture lately, but one of the things, and this is a no-brainer, when it is a private for-profit company, and it doesn't mean this is how they have to operate, it's a choice, but you view the people who are there to basically maximize profit, grow engagement for a company like Facebook, protect shareholder profit, all of those types of things as the people who are revenue generators. 
And then you view people who are there to protect the public, to slow you down and ask about, wait a minute, let's think through all the potential unintended consequences before we just throw this out into the world. People like me, the risk people, we're cost centers. And as long as we are always viewed as cost centers and therefore generally don't have a seat at the actual decision-making table, then the things that we are warning about will never take priority. And I get it. It's a public company. So that's why I say sometimes I believe they are going to have to be incentivized in a different way through whether it's regulation or through something else. But so first of all, there's that part of the culture. Obviously, we all know about sort of the move fast tech culture, which is not always a bad thing. It depends on what we're talking about. But for a company, again, like Facebook, what's fascinating, this is fascinating to me. We have this guy, and I, I'm not even going to get into the fact that we've reinvented the story of Mark Zuckerberg, because he did actually create a company to rate the looks of women in his college. Like, it wasn't this grand, lofty, I want to save the world uh, company. But we want to believe so much in our, like, tech unicorns that we've reinvented this story. So now he's like, well, connecting the world is the most important mission in the world. And here's what's fascinating to me. Part of the culture is for every single person to 100% believe that that is true and that they are on the most important mission in the world. And did anybody, were there commissions that like really studied to make sure that that is a net positive? Was there any sort of thought put into at any point, are we going to revisit our core mission and decide if that actually is the most important thing in the world. So there's just not enough questioning. There's not enough questioning of assumptions. There's not enough questioning of your leadership. And so, yeah, the culture, I mean, there's so many reasons the culture was fascinating to me, but the biggest one is that it's not a culture that incentivizes slowing down. And if you really want to think critically about the problems in the world and ensure that you are not making them worse, you have to be able to slow down because you have to game out all the potential unintended consequences and all of the potential signposts that you need to watch along the way, which is what I did as an Intel officer. And then make sure you're constantly revisiting to see if any of those signposts are happening. And it's just not something that's incentivized in today's tech culture. I'm reminded of the piece that you wrote in which you say, one of the many reasons I did not last even six months at Facebook was that I wanted to dissect the problem and to ensure that the company not only built programs and tools to protect users, and in the case of your particular role and your entire life's work, democracy, but also that we do so after thinking through a myriad of potential consequences, good and bad, of what we're about to throw out into the world. Yes, this means slowing down. This means asking tough questions. This means assuming the worst outcomes and building with those in mind. That's your quote. The phrase you use that you wanted to, quote, dissect the problem, which meant slowing down, is, of course, a reference to Facebook's motto, move fast and break things, a phrase that has become, I think, synonymous with a certain dynamic in tech culture, even beyond Facebook. I want to kind of look at that a little bit. What, what is wrong with a culture that advocates moving fast and breaking things? Why would, in your terms, we want to slow down? What's the significance there? What, what are the consequences of moving fast and breaking things? And what does slowing down allow us to do? I think we've seen a lot of the consequences of the move fast culture. And again, it's not about saying we should spend six months deliberating every single possible decision. It's not about that. Let's be very, very clear. Facebook intentionally scaled to dominate the entire globe's way of communicating with each other. This wasn't by accident. This was their choice. This is what, they're, what they wanted to do. And with that comes responsibility. And I'll give sort of talk around a bit of an example from my time at Facebook. You know, we were batting around ideas for a particular country's election that was coming up. And it was a big country with a consequential election coming up. And I found that, you know, I was some, I was the only person in this conversation that actually had real world experience. I'm sorry, I don't mean that in a condescending way. I had brilliant people working with me, but they had always worked on these tech issues. None of them had ever spent time in these countries or, you know, working on more of the human side of these issues. And somebody asked a question about, well, how should we do X? 
And I remember responding and I said something like, well, here's what I'd recommend. However, I want to ensure that we've looked at every side and would love to hear other people weigh in who've looked at it differently. Great. That's what we're doing was the answer. It was the first person to respond was the thing we decided we'd throw out in the world. Something that would affect hundreds of millions of people was going to be just tested because I was the first person to respond. And if you think about that, these are not things we're testing to see if you like orange is better than apple. We're talking about things that we're testing in terms of how to deal with political advertising in an election in a country that's not even the US, like we're exporting this to the rest of the world. So I just think when things that have to do with geopolitical consequences, with communities that I'm sorry, but the people in Menlo Park don't know a lot about, in really tough situations where violence could erupt, where, I mean, all of these things, they require actual analysis and expertise. That was actually one of the things I was criticized for, that I didn't answer emails quickly enough. I always answered the emails the same day, but apparently that wasn't quick enough. And so if you're constantly being valued on how quick you respond to things, then are you doing your due diligence to make sure that what you're doing is not going to harm someone, is not going to... The only thing I felt like they really took their time to make sure they were doing was not breaking laws. Other than that, it was like, let's just throw this out in the world and see. I mean, I remember when Facebook was talking about their dating app. I was still working there at the time. And they were talking about using Facebook connections to maybe start a dating service. And I'm sitting in the room of like 20 people who are all lovely, kind-hearted, good-meaning people. And I looked around the room and I said, am I the only one in this room who is highly uncomfortable with the idea that we are going to use people's human behavioral data that we've sucked up all over the internet to then recommend who they should date and the possible consequences that could come out of that? Dead silence. Nobody else even thought that that could ever be an issue. I want to pick up on something that you just said here, because you you talked about the good people that you worked with in Menlo Park. And I asked this question to folks who I know who have spent a lot of time working in the context of Silicon Valley. I get a lot of answers. So I wanted to ask you as well. One of the things that I grapple with living and working in the context of Silicon Valley, which is where these tech giants are primarily located in that area around Menlo Park, is the sense in which in, in general, when I'm going about my daily business and interacting with people in Silicon Valley, the people who work in tech, they seem like really kind of generally good people. These tech places seem like wonderful places to work. They have these Edenic campuses, there's amenities, there's candy walls, there's endless events, there's parties, there's camaraderie, there's open bars to foster community. How do we understand the relationship between this culture of good people in a feel-good culture, good people who have kind of good, solid, progressive educations, and this utopian vision on the one hand, and the culture of production that you describe on the other, in terms that are deeply disturbing and unthoughtful, what happens to these good people? So I think part of it is lack of exposure to other kinds of people. And what I mean by that is, I mean, listen, there's all kinds of people that work at these companies. Facebook is huge at this point. I'm just thinking about the people that I worked with. There were those who had been at Facebook a long time, and I'm going to be very frank, drink the Kool-Aid. I will say this, day one, Facebook orientation to me felt a little bit cultish and like an indoctrination. They just kept telling me, you're at the best place in the world and you are the smartest person in the world because we hired you. So you must be. And it was just this constant feed, feed our egos. But I also noticed there was not a lot of appetite to listen to outside voices. And you can see some of this in some of the writing that's some of the leaks that have happened, some of the BuzzFeed articles recently about like some of the internal whistleblowers from Facebook. And it just boggles my mind how much, if you really read those pieces critically, you'll see one of the number one things is that people at Facebook suddenly realize something is wrong that outside critics have been saying for a very long time. But there's just no appetite to listen to outside critics. I also think there's a problem where, and I'm sorry, I know I keep saying Facebook, but I'm going to speak to the company that I had experience at. They really feed you this line that it's a flat organization. Because when they started, it kind of was, right? And like, you can be the most junior engineer, but if you've got the smartest idea, that's going to win at the end of the day, because it's a meritocracy or it's a flat organization. And I don't know that enough of the more junior employees actually see that it is not because you can read, there was a letter that 250 Facebook employees signed. I think it was last, I don't know, time is very confusing these days. It might've been two years ago at this point, 
And they were raising an issue with Mark Zuckerberg's decision to let politicians lie in political advertising. And these 250 employees signed these letters about the things they want to do in the world, but are being prevented to do by the policy decisions happening by their leadership. And little things like that make me see, well, there's, it's just, it's starting to crack away at the idea of in your individual job, you know what you're fighting for, but is it marrying up to the larger policy decisions? Because at a company like Facebook, at the end of the day, their business and political decisions of the leadership have made. And so I think it's not really about whether an individual is good or bad. It's about also whether they're really willing to question, hard to question yourself. It's hard to question your role in the world. It's hard to question your leadership. And it is very easy to live in that bubble and completely close off outside critics because the tech industry, one real criticism I have is they're very good at pushing back and disparaging all critics as not technologically savvy enough to understand us, of having ulterior motives, of all of these things. And so, sorry, this is a bit long-winded, but people are finally starting to question their leadership, question their assumptions, question really what role do we have in the world as opposed to starting from the premise of we know our mission is the most important mission in the world so all I need to do is figure out how to make sure I'm helping achieve that mission is a very different thing than I'm not so sure our mission is the most important mission in the world and is it possible that I've been wrong about that all along and that's a harder question to ask yourself. I have one last question that has to do with Facebook, and maybe this can be a bridge into talking about the the context of legislation and regulation and where we ought to be. And the question has to do with a recent announcement made by Facebook's oversight board. The oversight board was recently tasked with deliberating over Facebook's decision to ban the former president, Donald Trump, from the platform. The deliberation kind of kicked the football back, I would say, to Facebook after deliberating on it. The oversight board really established to create the binding kind of decision-making process over Facebook. And this oversight board has been called the Supreme Court of Facebook. And I know some of the folks involved in that oversight board. I think they're smart. They're, they're thoughtful people. I trust them to be smart and thoughtful in their decisions. But I can't help, again, feeling just a little bit cynical. First of all, why does Facebook have the benefit of a Supreme Court, which I imagine they think of and have named much like our Supreme Court. Um, but unlike our Supreme Court, their Supreme Court is not vetted by public elected officials. It is not subject to political appointments. It is in no way related to any recognized juridical process in the public sphere. And second of all, it seems to me like the issues they're deciding ought to actually be regulated by the kinds of laws and processes created by a Supreme Court or at least public elected officials who are subject to appointments um, and who are tethered to recognized juridical processes. Why aren't Facebook's decisions regulated by law laws? Why do they get a Supreme Court? There's so much to unpack in this question. Just the fact that they call it a Supreme Court, think about that for a second. Let that really settle in. This company actually thinks they are as big as a government. Like that is really fundamentally disturbing to me. So I will not call it a Supreme Court. I will never use that terminology, although obviously Mark Zuckerberg does. Listen, in, in theory, actually, the idea of an external board made up of members of society with actual oversight over some of these content moderation decisions is a great idea in theory. In practice, though, unfortunately, when it's designed and handpicked and funded by Facebook, that just to me loses all credibility. And the fact that we have to keep saying that the people on the Facebook oversight board are very smart and impressive in and of itself shows that we have to keep giving oxygen to this. Yes, there are smart and impressive people on the board. That to me isn't the issue. They're not accountable to me. They're not accountable to the public. The US government in particular, because we are further behind than much of the rest of the world, has completely hunted their responsibility on figuring out how to protect, listen, government's role is to protect the citizens of this country from whether it's bad business practices or externalities from companies, obviously from terrorists, from all these things. And this is the one industry, the only industry that the U.S. government has never figured out 
how to talk about what those externalities are and protect the public against them. And I understand speech is a very complicated issue. So this so-called Supreme Court, the Oversight Board, Facebook gave them a very narrow mandate of just really getting to overrule or agree with Facebook content moderation decisions. To me, content moderation is not actually the issue though. It's complicated, it's difficult, and it would be really great for true transparent oversight of it, but nothing in content moderation actually addresses the underlying systemic issues of a business model that is predicated on hoovering up our human behavioral data and using it against us. And so the oversight board's decision was interesting. There was a lot in there that actually, let's be frank, was really replicating some of the very strong talking points that many critics have given over the years. But none of it is binding. None of it even means anything. We're in this middle of what others have called, and I've called a tech clash or backlash against tech. There's this widespread acknowledgement that particularly big tech behaves badly and will continue to behave badly unless something reigns it in. So why don't we see more attempts to rein it in? What gets in the way of legislation or regulation that might put a stop to this behavior? And what kinds of laws or regulations do you think we need? Sure, I'm going to kind of divide this into three parts. First of all, I just, I have to say, the term tech lash, it actually very much bothers me. And, and you used it correctly. That's what people say. They say there's this tech lash. It implies that those of us who are demanding accountability for the externalities caused by some of these companies are anti-tech. And it's very convenient to call us anti-tech because then it allows leaders in the tech industry to ignore us. I am not anti-tech. I have worked with some brilliant tech companies who truly are thoughtful about how they operate, about how they build their culture, about how they use data. So first and foremost, I would love us to somehow sunset the term tech lash because it is intentionally meant to pit it us against them, right? Technologists versus the angry critic. I wanna see tech do better. Like that's not a tech lash. So secondly, why haven't we figured it out yet? That, there's a lot to unpack there. I'll just give a few very quick thoughts. Yes, there's no question the US government is behind the times. There's no question that our government could use an upgrade as well. But I will say the argument that our lawmakers are too stupid, and I'm not, maybe people don't use the word stupid, but let's be frank, that's kind of what they mean when they say they're not sophisticated enough to understand how to even understand the text. So how dare they even try to legislate or regulate? I'm sorry, but I don't think a US Senator needs to understand chemistry to the point of being able to actually talk about how particular foods are made to perhaps poison the public to say, we are going to regulate against poisonous foods. Like the idea that they have to understand how to code an algorithm in order to talk about the things that we should not allow to happen is absurd. It would be like saying in order to regulate the car industry, every US Senator should be an auto manufacturer engineer. It's, just, it's absurd, but it is a very convenient talking point. Also, that is very pushed by the tech lobbyist world to say that people like me or people in the government are just not smart enough to know what to do. So what would I love to see happen? I think there's a combination of things. Um, there's, let's be frank, there's no one silver bullet. There's not going to be a law that is passed and then suddenly we're going to get to a place where tech is serving humanity and it's all good. From my perspective, the thing that frustrates me the most is that there is a 100% lack of accountability. The reason why social media is such a focus is because that's the part of the tech industry that gets to benefit from sort of this immunity from any sort of accountability because they claim that they're not responsible for what other people post on their platforms. But what about their tools? What about how their targeting tools are used to target people with this information? What about the way their recommendation engines recommend content to people or possibly even recommend you into a QAnon group, even though you might have not gone onto the platform looking for QAnon? Or what about how their algorithms curate your feed and take you down a more and more extreme path? Those are not about regulating speech. To me, it's about regulating the tools that these industries have created. And a lot of that just comes down to, I personally believe if a Facebook, for example, knew that they could, it doesn't mean that when January 6th and the insurrection at the Capitol happens, we're automatically throwing Mark Zuckerberg in jail. 
But what it does mean is if somebody wants to consider a lawsuit against Facebook because it's recommendation engines connected a Facebook user to a hate group that then planned an insurrection and actually targeted that individual with ads for military grade weapons and all of these things that their tools do, that at least somebody should be able to have their day in court to see if Facebook actually did do that. That's the difference. Right now, we don't even have the possibility to look into any of their algorithms, their recommendation engines, their targeting tools, because it's all lumped into sort of their immunity. So that's being challenged now. I think that's an area, and yes, that gets into what many of you heard about Section 230. I don't want to kill it. I don't think we need to get rid of it. I just think we need to interpret it in a way that's relevant for 2021. I'm not an antitrust expert, but there's lots of arguments around, you know, anti-competitive behavior and anti-monopoly behavior. A lot of your students, I'm sure, are thinking about startups and the things they want to innovate on and the things they want to create in the world. And for them to be successful, they need a competitive landscape. And then the third is data. We need to think as a country about what does privacy mean? You know, what is my personal data and how should companies be allowed to use it? And we are behind on all three of those pieces of the puzzle. So yes, I want the US government to stand up, step up. And the problem is we are in such a hyper-polarized environment right now that all these conversations about how to regulate tech, by the way, very much helped by the tech industry itself to make sure that they aren't regulated is so polarized that I'm not totally sure we're ever going to get there. I do want to ask a couple of questions on my mind about the next generation of students, many of whom of mine I see here in a context of our audience. What would you want that next generation of technologists and humanists going into tech or tech-related jobs to know or understand or be aware of as they move forward in their careers? One important thing, because I work with a lot of young technologists and I taught at Cornell Tech, so I taught a bunch of computer scientists as well. And it's pushing people to question their own assumptions, to engage with people that have completely different experiences, to never think there is a 100% tech solution to any human problem, to figure out how do you blend the tech and the human side, meaning do you engage with sociologists, political scientists, you know, human rights activists on the ground to ensure that what you are building or putting out in the world that you've thought about it from multiple angles. I think there's also moving forward a question of if you are trying to build something that you are truly hoping contributes in a positive way to the world. So right now, so much of the tech industry, and I don't even blame technologists. I mean, this is what funders have funded, right? Has been about making life convenient, right? It's about making things free, making things convenient, Ask yourself, is that what I want to build? Or do I want to build an actual product that has an actual customer that actually does something to help someone in the world? Convenience, I think we have to get past the idea that the biggest tech innovation should be about making life more convenient. And, and, you know, I said the other day, like with Facebook, for example, they continue to argue that they are showing you more relevant ads. So they're giving you a better user experience. You know, the most interesting and life-changing moments I have had have always been when something completely out of the expected happened, when I met someone that I never would have met if I had just stayed within the lane of what I'm told I should be in. The experiences are so out of left field. And if we continue to curate our world so that we never have those experiences, I just think it'll be a less rich and fulfilling world. So question, is that the world you're working in? Um, so that's one. And two, listen to the skeptics and the critics earlier on, especially if they're ones who are doing it because they want you to succeed. Like, I think part of it is you're hustling as a startup, right? I'm not saying you're all going to go work at startups. Some of you are going to go work for big established companies already. But at the startup phase, you've got so much you have to do. You've got so much on your plate. So engaging with outside voices or advisors who are going to test your assumptions, question your biases, help you slow down and think about things. It's just something that you keep, I keep hearing startups say, that's super interesting. I, I can't do that yet. Wait till I get my funding and then I will engage with those people. It's much harder to fix a very bad problem later than it is to build from the beginning while thinking through all the possible consequences.
I'm going to go ahead and ask a question from Dr. Pat Lynn, who's in the audience, and I see some hands up as well. Many folks would say that America's problem with political division, racism, etc., is a very old problem, dating back at least to the Civil War, if not to the original sins of slavery and the genocide of Native Americans. Thus, Facebook, a all, really only lifted the veil of civility. It didn't create the problem. Would you agree with that position? If so, can tech do anything to solve that root social problem, e.g., what can it possibly do to promote empathy among people who aren't already inclined to be empathetic or want to do better? Or is putting the veil back on the best we can hope for, which does not seem very sustainable? Um, It's a great question. All the societal issues that have been exacerbated, I would say exacerbated by the way our information ecosystem operates right now, but they were there to begin with. Otherwise they couldn't have been exploited, manipulated and exacerbated. So 100%, we are a country who has not truly reconciled our past. We're a country that continues to believe that our problems in the past are over and we can just move forward. And clearly we have deep, deep, deep societal issues that we have never addressed and need to. And so I 100% agree with that. And that's where I, that's why I say I don't like the term tech lash because technology, including social media has done a lot of good as well, right? It's, it's helped expose a lot of these issues. It's given voice to a lot of people who didn't have voice before. These things are all true. The negative though, I don't want to get into the whole attention economy speech, especially because it is not, I don't believe it is the only end all be all problem. But when we do have companies who are using our human behavioral data to then suck us into certain directions and curate how we interact with people and decide for us what we will see and where we will go in terms of groups and pages and how we will be targeted, that takes a situation where we have really serious issues and allows people to exploit it with zero accountability. That's the issue, right? Listen, cable news, let's be frank. There are cable news networks who are more egregious than Facebook in terms of how they definitely spread disinformation, how they enrage their viewers. But those cable news networks, they're giving one message to everybody who watches them. Let's be frank. If I go into Fox News or onto MSNBC, I am making a choice. I know what I am watching. And does it give, does it mean that it is okay what they're doing? I don't think so. But it's not the same thing as a company that claims they're there to just help you watch your friend's cat videos and your family's baby pictures. But underneath it, there's a machine that is actually targeting you with information and curating how you interact with the world. So I think my issue is just how these companies have actually exploited our biggest vulnerabilities. And and I know this is a long answer, but I'm going to give one example here because I feel like I've been speaking in vague terms. You know, I spent the early part of my career really running what one would call some hearts and minds work along the Somalia border. And and this was very much pre-Facebook. This was like 2004, 2005. And one of like, what did that mean? That meant I was spending time in communities that were vulnerable to being exploited by extremist messaging for a variety of reasons, because they were marginalized, a variety of societal reasons. And I was engaging with them to figure out what, how are they vulnerable to this messaging? And is there a way to counter message, to show them who we are, to engage, to start building trust? And all of that involved understanding their vulnerabilities and how they're being exploited by extremist messages. Then you go to a company like Facebook, and I look at, for example, Ashley Babbitt, the woman who stormed the Capitol on January 6th and was shot by the Capitol police officer. And I did a deep dive into her Twitter feed after that happened before they started deplatforming people, so her Twitter feed changed. And she'd been nonstop retweeting QAnon and like had really gone down this rabbit hole. And the reason I bring up this whole story, by the way, because I know this is a long answer, I look at someone like her and I think, based on everything I've read about her, she was a U.S. veteran, she had fought overseas, she came home, she was disillusioned by what she found back in the U.S., she had a hard time adjusting to civilian life, her businesses were failing, everything about her is kind of the profile of someone who is vulnerable to exploitative messaging. And so why do I bring that up? Is it Facebook's fault that she stormed the Capitol? 
Probably not. However, did their algorithms figure out her vulnerability because she was starting to question things about her own government and start feeding her QAnon content? Did the recommendation engines recommend a conspiracy group to her based on something she had searched on Google? Did then Facebook or YouTube recommend her to a certain conspiracy theory group? Do they possibly connect her with the Stop the Steal group that then plans January 6th? These are the things that are very different from saying it's a societal issue. These are tools that took that woman's vulnerabilities. And I don't know, maybe they didn't, but I'll never know because we have no insight. There's no transparency into any of the recommendation engines and the tools and how this all went down. Well, thank you for the elaborate response. There are two questions that came in that I think are compatible, so I'm going to put them together. Kevin Keller asks, work like The Social Dilemma have highlighted that the product of social platforms like Facebook is and always has been small, measurable changes in user behavior, beliefs, and values. How do you see an ethical future of social platforms, considering that their core business model is selling individuals themselves to the highest bidder? David Mitchell, in a similar vein, asks this following question, is the change that is being desired here even possible within a capitalist framework? How can a corporation be motivated to be good when the profit is literally the only motivator? So those are two very different questions. um, And I love them both. I'll say why they're very different questions. I'll start with the first one. I'm not going to go as far as the social dilemma did. If you watch it, you might see that I'm in it. I don't go quite as far as they do in the social dilemma. But I, I do think that there absolutely can be a generation of social media companies that just don't use our human behavioral data against us. Does it solve everything I care about in the world? No, that's the other thing. People think that I'm saying that fix Facebook and the whole world is gonna be a beautiful place. That's not actually a reality. But I do 100% believe that there has to be other social media models. But again, as long as we want everything free, fast and first, it's also on us to recognize that that's what we're gonna get. I think there's, different ways to monetize platforms. I work with a lot of companies who are trying to think through this. You know, that's part of what we do at Beta Lab. We're investing in the next wave of technologies who are trying to think about different business models. We're trying to think about different ways to tackle some of these issues. So I do think it's possible. I think it's an uphill battle and that's where antitrust comes in because of the anti-competitive nature right now. But to the second question, and this is where I really grapple, like I don't have the answer to this because you are correct. The current capitalist system, our current market-based system absolutely incentivizes bad behavior, period. Like in, in this particular industry, because look at what happened after the FTC put down a $5 billion fine on Facebook for abusing user data. The market rallied. They're like $5 billion. That's a slap on the wrist. That's not even going to hurt this company. And their stocks went up. And so there's something fundamentally misaligned. We love to talk about the free markets and the markets will always correct. There's something fundamentally misaligned with that philosophy if the markets are going to rally after a company gets a $5 billion fine for abusing our data. And so I believe that unfettered capitalism combined with unfettered innovation is a very dangerous recipe. I believe in free markets. I believe in our capitalist system, but not unfettered. And that's where the U.S. government is going to have to figure out again Figure out what the externalities are and figure out either how you're going to tax them or how you're going to make predatory business models no longer the most economically viable business model. And that's, that is where regulation and legislation has a role to play. Brandon Novak, do you want to ask your question? Yeah. So you mentioned a story about the first one to speak gets the implementation. And that speaks, I think, particularly to the fact that we are in a time to market world right now. And there are so many problems with that. That's sort of secondary to the question that I want to ask. That first one to speak, getting the implementation, getting the attention, getting the drive, getting the support of both their peers and of their superiors is something that I see as a student even now. And I've seen as a student for the last four years. How do you fight against that? How do you fight against the lack of challenging new ideas, not just from a personal perspective, but from a cultural perspective? And what role do things like education, students, administration, universities play in encouraging that discussion? 
No, Brandon, I wish I had a great answer for this. I mean, I've got my ideal answer for it. I guess others will have to decide if it's practical. I'm going to start from the end of your question and work backwards. I think universities have a huge role to play in like as cliche as it sounds. And, and I know I'll get slammed for this by some people for critical thinking. Some people say that critical thinking is like overused as a term. But, you know, the very, very first piece I wrote when I left Facebook was about how I was trained at the CIA to recognize bias and to question assumptions and how nobody at Facebook was ever trained on that. And yet they were making some of the biggest decisions in the world. And I think universities have a huge role to play in giving more of a multidisciplinary education. You know, my computer scientists, <laughs> they all told me that they were terrified to take my class because I didn't give them quantifiable metrics on exactly how they would be graded because I didn't give them like exact percentages of if you do this, this is how you will get an A. And I made like 30% or 40% of the grade participation. And it like was just not the way computer scientists apparently think. I'm sure many of you are laughing at me right now. And at the end of the semester, they all said, you pushed me to think in a way I never had before. And so I think multidisciplinary education, teaching people to think about a full range and full spectrum of possibilities. If anything, it just enriches you more as a human. If we have our way, it also helps you be a better employee in any company you're working in. So that's one. As far as how we incentivize this slowing down, I don't have the perfect answer, not in the way to the previous question, our capitalist system right now is currently incentivizing companies. That said, I've said for a long time that people who want to like really think about societal impacts first are funded by philanthropy and people who want to make things convenient are funded by venture capitalists. And, and that's an issue. <laughs> Sorry, there's so many things we can unpack and each answer could be an hour long. But I do think right now the venture community is going to realize, you know what, solving climate change is actually something that's going to make us money. So let's start thinking on how to invest in the smartest climate solutions. Solving the problem of the disinformation may actually be profitable someday. So I do think we'll start to see a shift in how things are funded, hopefully. But I'm just really hopeful that this generation that's rising now, technologists, see some of the problems that have happened in the past and really incorporate that into how they even challenge their leaders' thinking. I, I do see movement there. I just think it's not going to be an overnight. I don't have the most satisfactory answer. Kevin Hauser, do you want to ask her a question? I just wanted to raise an incentive architecture that kind of includes or encompasses both parts of your career. And this has to do with a sort of spiral or, or sort of mutual backscratching that goes on when, let's say that the government has a certain set of surveillance and storage issues that are either logistically or legally problematic, and they realize they can outsource and privatize those problems and get them done. And they repay, say, the tech companies by maybe not breaking them up or maybe permitting them to bury their critics or competing platforms. And then most of all, selling the swept up data, being able to design and sell that swept up stuff with the agreement that they allow the government to have a look should anything arise or should they ask. So if that's right, maybe it's not right. You can tell me that. But if that's sort of the incentive architecture that includes sort of that democratic aspect, which the government's doing this for security reasons, presumably, and they're outsourcing this kind of work, it almost inverse regulatory capture or something. It doesn't look like, I'm wondering how you would plant your feet. Why do you plant it on the tech side and not the this sort of mutual incentive structure that, that goes from government to tech and back again? It's a super interesting question. To be fair, that's why I said earlier on, I put a lot of blame at the U.S. government's feet, actually. Yeah, just, right. just to be fair, we're talking a lot about the tech side today. You know, I, I don't know if it's quite to the degree that you're explaining. And if it is, then that's fair game for criticism. I think as the public, it's on us to demand accountability, both from our government and from the companies that are profiting off of us. And... I think part of my, I don't have a great answer because I don't know that that's true to that degree. But what I don't like is on the government side, there's very little trust left in the tech industry from like on the Democratic side because of Facebook in 2016, on the Republican side because they seem to think they're being censored, all of this stuff. So everybody blames certain parts, certain parts of the tech industry. 
And on the tech industry side, there's very little trust in some quarters of the government, post Edward Snowden, for example. So I'm just going to be real blunt. Great. You both fell off your high horse. Now can we reset and get back to like, we are in a world where like government is kind of what created the internet to begin with. And it's in all of our interests to figure out how government and the tech industry can work more closely. I know a lot of people in the tech industry don't want to think about the security side of things, but government's job is still to protect our security and there you have to figure out what your trade-offs are there but that's where it's us as a public it is our role to hold our government and our companies accountable and the only way we can do that listen the reason why I speak up so much and whenever people ask me at the end so what can we do I say you don't have to know what the solutions are you just have to tell your elected representative that you are concerned with how the tech industry is affecting, and I never say just the tech industry, I'm actually much more specific than that because much of the tech industry is amazing. I'm very concerned about how social media companies are affecting journalism, are affecting our democracy, affecting our elections, and you, my elected representative, it is on you to figure this out. If the public does not demand these answers then the government does not feel the pressure to handle it. And on the flip side, as a voter, it is on us to ask those questions of our elected representatives. Are you in fact in bed with the tech industry? And and I don't have the perfect answer for it. I don't think it is as clear cut as you described personally, but I could be proven wrong. I think we have time for maybe two questions. Jackie Crone asks, can you recommend any tech companies that have a strong moral compass and competent leadership? And I'm going to piggyback a little bit on that question and just ask you, I know that historians say prophecy is a form of heresy and journalists say prediction is for charlatans. I'm not asking you to predict the future, but in the lens of thinking about tech companies that offer potential for a strong moral compass as a model for us, are you optimistic about the future of tech and of democracy? Are you hopeful that we can make a change and get things right? Sure. So to the first question, so I'm not going to name particular companies. There are lots of them. I would say, first of all, Companies that sell a product often have a different sort of way they view their customers. Just as a small example, I spent a summer as a fellow, oddly enough, at Autodesk, helping them think through the the ethical use of data. As they were trying to, Autodesk, if you're familiar with them, they have a lot of data from all of their customers, but they were thinking really smartly about how to use it ethically. Why? Because their customers are paying customers. And so everything that matters to them was maintaining trust with their customers, right? So first and foremost, that might sound like a really simplistic answer, but generally tech companies that actually have customers are probably going to treat their customers better than like Facebook's customers, not us. We know this, right? It's the advertiser. So I I think looking and evaluating what a company's actual value proposition is, that's key. And what it is they're offering to the world. There's the I am a founder and I believe that connecting the world is the most important thing is very different than I've got a company and we're creating X, which is actually doing Y. I'm being a little vague because I hate to go down the list and like name particular companies. There's lots of them out there. I do think it's worth evaluating what is it they're selling? What is it they're trying to do in the world? And most importantly, when they do make mistakes, how does the leadership handle it? I think that's a very interesting and telling thing about a company as well. Am I optimistic? Um, You asked about technology and you asked about democracy. And those are like two very different things, although they interplay. (laughs) Am I optimistic about the future of technology? Sure. I mean, I vacillate. Some days I'm like completely pessimistic. Some days I'm completely optimistic, which makes me kind of a realist. I am excited about the next generation of technologists. Not to say that everyone my age and above is a terrible person. That's not what I mean. But there have been so many problems that have been exposed now and so much also injustice and so much about the culture, including like racial justice and and how women have been treated in the tech industry and all of these things that have been so exposed that I want to remain optimistic that the next generation of technologists are going to bake much of that into their conversations from day one and into how they think about the companies they want to build. So I'm optimistic for that. Whenever I work with young, younger people, I know I sound like I'm 80 now, I'm clearly not 80, but the more optimistic side of me comes out. Am I optimistic about the future of democracy? I am a future of democracy fellow right now, <laughs> Brooke Institute. I also vacillate. 
I am glad that the public is more aware now that you don't take democracy for granted. It is something you have to work for every single day. I've spent my entire life working to defend this democracy. I do think that until we value our democracy on the same level that we value other things, we are in trouble. And so hopefully the momentum to really think about what our democracy means doesn't die now that like, oh, okay, it was all just about this one election. No, it wasn't. It's about the entire future of the trajectory our country will be on. I'm, I go back and forth between optimism and pessimism, but as a friend once said to me, I wouldn't work so hard and put so much at stake for these issues if I didn't believe there's something worth fighting for. So I guess that's optimistic. Gail, thanks so much for ending uh, with that answer. I mean, thanks so much for everything today, but I think that's a great answer to end on. Thank you very much, Yael.